Brandon Lawrence, emergency med physician in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey guys, it's Steve Sample. I'm an ER doc in Jasper, Indiana. And this is the fifth episode of the Burnt Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome, guys. Uh, So today, um, our visit with our guest, Daniel, uh, was inspired by a little bit of a firestorm um, in the Twitterverse and on social media when... uh, the JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, they released a podcast talking about structural racism in healthcare. Um, the host of the podcast, uh, basically, um, his take home point was that we should not talk about it in terms of racism anymore. And then JAMA posted that to all of their social media pages with the tagline No physician is racist, so how can there be structural racism in healthcare? question mark and the collective <laughs> minds of of people of color um, and allies uh, exploded across the internet you could hear them it wasn't an earthquake um, and we wanted to talk a little bit about that and now as two white guys though i don't i don't think it's totally appropriate for just the two of us to be talking about it so for let's sure welcome, let's welcome daniel and who can give us some of his real life experiences and uh, some insight as to what he thought, uh, you know, what they were trying to convey and what they ended up conveying in the podcast. Well, hey, hey, guys. Um, so my name is Daniel Cologne. I am a first year pulmonary fellow in Colorado. And um, yeah, I I've worked a ton with COVID patients. So when the pandemic first hit, I was in, um, in Chicago, I was working as a chief resident and attending hospitalists. And it was just brutal. At the beginning, it was just um, our ICU was about 150% capacity. So we had to open um, extra ICUs, in which I was the attending for a few weeks. It was essentially a week on a week off of, of ICU. And even early on, I um, so my hospital was mostly in a uh, poor area of the city. It was in the, one of the west suburbs uh, of the city of Chicago, Berwyn, and it's predominantly a Hispanic population. Um, and, and black and no, it was um i it's something that i tell like some of my um friends that are not in medicine it's something that i will never forget what i saw in april um and in may of this year of 2020 is something i will never forget it was patient after patient after patient and it was it seemed like it was the same demographic it was middle-aged uh, mexican man um that's chicago's a very large mexican population and you know when, when you think of of why the reason you know people first trying to come up with like genetics and yada 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 but i think it's 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 not that i think you know in chicago and also here in denver um where i also see i've seen a lot of of uh, the latinx community being affected is you know the risk you know these folks have um, jobs are uh, are thought to be essential um are are so higher risk of, of infection they have less access to healthcare, so their baseline health is already poorer than their counterparts. So um, it's just systemic failures that have that did not protect this, these people, and then they live in multi-generational homes, and you know where the story goes. So um, uh, the son gets sick at work, then the mom, the dad, the cousins, and the grandma are sick in the hospital, and 
and you know that's how the story goes and then not only they're affected um then and get acutely ill but if they were to survive covid we've had so many patients in the past year that just can't leave the hospital because you know uninsured or uh underinsured or uninsured so we have they have to be in the hospital for months and months just uh as we serve as sort of an ltac so they can wean their ventilator and trig and peg and all that so um it's the the full cycle right so and now with the vaccination is it seems yeah. like it's the same yeah man uh circling back the thing that was uh primarily at the beginning of the pandemic that was so overlooked that you had mentioned was mm -hmm. the um the essential workers right and this was a conversation I'd had with a group of, of docs early on was as kind of a prediction of this is when we started seeing these spikes. Um, I think this was in April, starting seeing the spikes in the, you know, the black and Hispanic communities is, was that right? Because it's a much higher on the ground workers, whether it's, you know, a janitor, yard keeping, like people that just like, that's what they have to do. They don't have the luxury of sitting at home and working from the computer. They're doing a lot more of the physical labor and, and this manual labor to keep food on the table and they can't really be away from everyone else. So they can't support the family, you know? No, no, yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's right on. I mean, a lot of these jobs are just, you know, you, you can't drive a city bus, you know, from home, obviously. Right. right. So um, yeah. So all these folks were, I mean, they were forced, thrown into like the fire and I, and I compare myself to them, right? You know, I, I mean, I did not sign up to like take care of patients without PPE, but I did sign up for like this, right? A bus driver mm -hmm. did not sign up to like be unprotected and God knows who's getting in the bus, right? That's right. right. Yeah, it's been really challenging. I mean, it's been, so, it's, you know, I think, well, hopefully a lot of us are learning what a what a privilege it is to have a traditionally white collar job uh, in this and any other, because, you know, when we get down into the social determinants of health, which we're going to uh, talk about kind of, it'll be kind of a, a running theme throughout our talk. I think, um, you know, we were triggered by a recent JAMA podcast that uh, got enormous backlash online. But when we look at these social determinants of health, um, it's hard sometimes. It's easier, for, I think, for people to sit back and say, oh, well, genetically, they must have X, Y, or Z that makes them more at risk. And and, and I admit to you that as a physician and a scientist, my, my instinct is to look to the genetics as well, because we all know about, you know, sickle cell being protective of malaria and, and the different the different types of genetic, you know, adaptations that that different races uh, all over the world have made evolutionarily um, can also put them at risk for really nasty things. But it, it's really painful and hard to think that these people are getting sick and dying at such a higher rate just because of where they are in our society. You know, uh, whether it, you know, this, this classist structural kind of the way our, our nation has been built from the ground up. Uh, so it's a lot to consider and it's really hard. And there's a, there's a lot of pushback against even going down that road, I think, uh, and having just an honest conversation about it uh, because it doesn't feel safe. I think for a lot of people. No, I, I think you bring up a good point, And I think we'll come back to this later uh, is that the initial reaction, right? Because like being fully honest. Yeah. I mean, I, that's how I was taught to think, right? If a group of people are getting um, some sort of, you know, in this case, COVID and more severe COVID, the first thing, you know, that you were taught in medical school, it must be something genetic, right? Um, and like, and I think 
when we when we think of uh, no, racism and sexism and all these other isms, it's like you have to understand that this is the way we're wired, that society has us wired, right? And like our initial reaction, so like me as a man, my initial reaction of my initial, my default is to be like to act in like misogynistic ways. And like you have to be purposeful in what you do. And like, as you mentioned, right, your first thought was, oh, it must be genetic. But then you're like, wait a minute, it can be. I mean, because otherwise, you know, black and Hispanic folks have the gene for bad diabetes and bad heart failure and bad this and bad that. We can't have just all the bad genes, right? So I think, I think you bring up a good point that we'll, we'll talk about later, I think. It's yeah, really for good. sure. Yeah. I think, and it's what's interesting that you just brought this up already, and we can hit this later too, but uh, I just read this tweet uh, earlier this afternoon. I think uh, the Twitter handle is Steph C. Preston. She's a she's a doc. She posed, I almost tagged you to it, Daniel, and I was like, ah, we'll just talk about it later anyways. Yeah. Um, it was just like you say, where things were presumed genetic, right? Um, this COVID stuff, and this is nothing COVID related. So it, it actually is just periumbilical hernias, right? Mm-hmm. Having a much higher incidence of, uh, among black children. I think it's like threefold higher. And that initial study was done, I think it said 90 years ago, and this was never readdressed. Um, so this was just something that was just presumed to be, oh, okay, it's just something that happens, right? This is just something genetic instead of looking if there was anything multifactorial behind it. And I guess there was a Nigerian study that just came out that shows it's absolutely linked to nutrition. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that something that we just presumed is just just a, a genetic link to a race is actually a systemic issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, in umbilical hernias and in COVID, it's not black race. It's the black, it's the black experience, right? It's the experience of poverty and the experience of, of racism and discrimination and redlining and all these other things. I think that's the key issue, as you mentioned. So did you feel like, like different from other providers that, you know, maybe were Caucasian during this whole uh, pandemic? Because you, where are you from? I don't want to presume, so, I think I remember where you said you, you were from. Yeah, so I, I was born in Dominican Republic, yeah, uh, but I, yeah, and I grew up in Mexico. So I feel like I, um, so Dominican Republic, for those who are listening, um, it's a, uh, um, we are, we speak Spanish, so we are, I consider myself Hispanic, but um, it's a predominantly um, African uh uh, we have we have a lot of African descendants mixed with uh, European uh, colonizers. So, um, but then I grew up in Mexico, so I, I feel like I can, um, what's the word? I can relate to both experiences, right? So, you know, if I if I grew up in Mexico, and um, I feel like I can connect very well with you know the Mexican people here because you know we can share culture and like we make the same jokes and yada yada yada. But you know. I've also been called a bunch of you know, racial slurs because of my skin color. So I feel like I, I, I can relate to that too. So I think as you were asking me, how do I have I envisioned this experience and working in the pandemic? And like I seeing, I mean, a lot of people like, you know, I, I was joking with a patient the other day. She, and I said, you remind me of my mom. And like she had not only like the way she acted, but physically like short and like similar hair and like skin complexion. And like seeing people that I grew up around and it's, it's hard to see your own people. Um, and I feel very privileged of my precision, but um, seeing like my own people being affected by this, was, I think made it uh, a lot harder than um, the mother folks. 
I, I can totally buy that. I mean, you know, at our very core, we are tribal people. Um, and when we identify members of our own tribe, we we tend to re- respond more emotionally to them, you know, and, and even even beyond race uh, and culture, you know, there are people certainly that come into the ER that just remind me of mine. Like this could be my sister, my mom, you know, they, whether we come from the similar circumstances and you feel it's, you just identify and you empathize more um, than you can across cultures. You know, uh, I was just talking at work the other day. One of my biggest regrets is giving up, you know, I took Spanish in college and then I, I didn't need it for eight years and now I have nothing. I can, you know, I always tell my patients, I say, me llamo Esteban, donde está el baño, and uh, dos cervezas, por favor. And that, that is basically my Spanish. And I can certainly say, does it hurt here or there? But in medicine, we lose so much cult- across cultural lines. Um, and I think it's really, that's why it's so important to, to continue recruiting aggressively uh, physicians of color uh, from all different backgrounds, because I know that if I'm taking care of a little Dominican lady through a translator service, that I am not going to pick up on the emotional content of what she's saying. I don't understand the, and you miss those little subtle things that I can pick up in a redneck because those are my people, you know? And, And so you can, when somebody tells you they feel, when somebody tells you they feel fine, you can say, no, you don't. I can see you don't yeah, bullshit yeah. me, but I can't do yeah. that. So it's very challenging. And see, I, I nail the anxious Jewish population. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's interesting that you said that, Steve. So if you take like the, the your people, right, um, where you feel like, hey, this is someone that I can relate to. I think it's where where Daniel comes in. It's the reverse, right, for the patient. So he was seeing all these um black and and Hispanic people coming in that were ill. And I guarantee you them seeing him as their physician was probably a bit of a relief. Like I'm certain relate to this person. This is someone I'm going to have to see for the next, I don't know, month while I'm in the hospital. You know, it's, 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 this is exactly why I'm supporting what you said that they need to um, put this in the forefront of having more BIPOC uh, physicians. No. And I think, um, and I think it's also kind of therapeutic for us because, you know, like, I, I'm no saint, right? We all know that getting an interpreter is it's it's work, and like you know, it's um, it could be disruptive to to our workflow. And you know, when I have it takes a page twice that, as long. Yeah, that speaks another language I don't. It's it, I I'm like ah, oh. but you know, you get over that and you do your work. But for example, um, a few months ago, we were in, about to intubate this lady. Yeah, she was uh, this lady who spoke Spanish, and she's like, "Can I pray for a second? And then, of of course, um, and then. You know, you would think that she was going to pray for herself and like, oh, man, God, I'm scared and whatever. She prayed for us. And then like she was thanking God for us and all the work that we did and like to protect us. And you would have missed that. Right. Because we're not going to translate this um, for get sure. a, an, an interpreter for this. And like it's just like those little stories. Like I'm like, man, we need to stop. I'm, I'm over, I have like the blade in my hand. I'm about to start crying. Right. <laughs> that That um, is tough. Yeah, that yeah. is tough. I don't think that's ever really happened to me. Yeah, that, exactly. Especially yeah, was, since you knew that her chances of coming off the vent, especially early on were, uh, you know, not zero, but they weren't, they weren't good. You thought you yeah. were sending her off to die. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She prayed for us and that, that her husband is okay. And she prayed for everybody, but for herself. And like, I feel that, um, yeah, you, you miss on those things that make patients more human. I think in medicine, we already have that problem where we tend to think of room numbers or diagnoses and, um, yeah, 
yeah, you, you miss a lot on that. If uh, with a lot of patients that we that have uh, speak other languages or have different cultures. Yeah, I purposely every time a, a nurse or a tech says, "Hey, can room four have this?" I go, "Who?" Like every single time, even if I just walked out of the room, so I, I just don't, I don't like that because half the time I don't remember who it is because I, I look at their names first. But mm -hmm. I, I make it a point of, of doing that because yeah, like you said, the humanism, humanistic side of medicine, like COVID's taken that away for the most part with you know taking away like the human touch, right? Physically, exa physical exams, family visits, all that stuff. So it's like kind of the little things that we can do. And in, in your position, just understanding your language and culture, you got that little kind of nugget out of it, and and. Uh, yeah. It's pretty interesting. No, and I, it was, it was, it was quite touching. And like you know, I'm sure you guys feel the same. Like, you you can't remember every patient, but there's like a few patients that I'm sure in your careers you will never forget. And like that moment, I'll never forget. It's just like man, in this moment, which is like having trouble breathing. I I'm I just talk. We need to intubate you, and like I cannot assure you that you're gonna come off. She thought about you know us, and like yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think humanism in medicine is important to make it keeps us grounded and like focused. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot, you know, this is a, just the whole discussion of, um, race and culture in medicine by two traditionally white boys from the United States. It's a little tricky to even have this conversation mm -hmm. to even, to even brush up against it because, mm -hmm. uh, because it is such a hot button right now across medicine and it's mm -hmm. making people fight. Um, and question. Um, and then, you know, a lot of stuff came to a head last week when when JAMA um, posted the podcast. It was just a little 13 or 14 minute podcast, I think. And it was the host was the host had a had a guest on who was talking about basically racial determinants of health and, and social determinants of health um, and systemic racism that kind of permeates the structure that we all work within, no matter our color. Um, and then JAMA the 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 host of the podcast was very clearly uncomfortable using the term racism uh when it was discussed and um made it very clear to close it with basically we got to find a new word to talk about this because clearly there are problems um and then of course jama tagged it in their twitter feed and all their social media with since no physician is racist, how can blah, 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 blah. And everybody's minds collectively fucking imploded because we were like, no physician is racist. I was like, look, I'm a white physician in the country. I know physicians who are racist, you yeah. know, Steve, uh, like I know myself uh, physicians who are racist. So, you know, it's hard to make this blanket statement. Uh, but now there's a lot of backbiting back and forth, you know, across the medical Twitter verse um and all the other social media uh outlets um and it's it's challenging you know to even put your foot in the water as just your basic white boy um because because if you get too aggressive then it sounds you know i don't want to speak for people of color um i don't want to speak on their behalf i want to make it a safe space for them to speak for themselves. And I don't really know how to approach that. Well, uh, I'm still learning. Um, and I'd love to hear your kind of take on how this goes and really how, how just a traditional middle-aged white guy can fit into this conversation to kind of advance the cause for people who need it, who are coming up behind us. No, no I think you, I, you said a lot of stuff and I think um, good <laughs> stuff. Um, and <laughs> He and you know, for example, stuff. I do. I get you happy. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, like imagine, like you know, we are three dudes. Let's say we were talking about like 
misogyny and sexism. Like we're not experts. We don't suffer from it. We don't know what it feels like. We don't know how we, so like you can't have two white men like with pretty high positions, not only two doctors, like pretty high positions within medicine. Talk about racism, like, um, and like make some bold statements. Like if we came out of this podcast and we said, hey, there's no sexism in medicine, we will become viral tomorrow because it will be ridiculous, <laughs> right? Like, right, yeah, how right. can okay, three men t- talk about, say that? Like it will be, it's nonsense. Right. So when I think of, 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 you know, people like you guys who are like interested in, in, in this kind of work and it's, it's tricky, right? Cause, um, I, I think that allies are needed, right? We need people in power that, that their voices are heard just because of unfortunately how they look, um, to, uh, advocate for us, you know, that we can do so much talking as, you know, people of color, but we need people in power. And unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of those people in power are um, white men and white women. And so it, it's hard for us as, as people of color to do that ourselves. So we need people, we need you guys to kind of be our allies as, you know, it seems like it's a very common term to be used. But but I think um, it's, it's a tricky balance because sometimes what happens a lot is kind of these conversations with like the whole attention is taken by two white folks like in this in this podcast so i think um um I, I was reading about somebody you know it's like using your privilege to elevate the voices of of those whose voices are not being heard so i think you know um you know promoting and like black women and like um ret- and like it's just like you know not all of us are heads of major organizations but you know like you can, in the little things you right you retweet messages or you um, you know, invite to your podcast, people of color. And I think, you know, showing how you care about these topics and showing support with, and, but we also at the same time, removing yourself from the center. Cause I think, uh, in order for, for this movement of, you know, anti-racism and like all these fights that we, we taking up the medicine, uh, people of color need to be at the center of it. And like, it, whether that's black doctors or Hispanic doctors or whatever their minoritized group or, or, you know, patients in general, the general population. So I think um, that's how I think we achieve things, right? So if, you know, we can keep, be here talking about sexism in medicine without having a woman, right? Because like we're, our experience or knowledge and expertise will have no value because we don't experience the same. We can theorize all we want about uh, women experience, but none of us has had that experience, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. You know, a, a good friend of mine uh, named Tia Williams, she is a black activist in the Louisville, Kentucky area. Um, and we have been involved in some activism together, me peripherally through her. Um, and she talks about uh the dining room, you know, when we talk about what, what, what can we do? Because, because me as an ally and as somebody who feels anxious to move things forward, um, you know, I'm like, well, what can I do? What can I do? What about this? And she says, you know, there are some conversations that we have to have with our people at our dinner tables. You need to have conversations with your people at your dinner table. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that, two white boys can't talk about racism. I think you just have to be very careful about the way we do it. And I want to do it, you know, I want to do it compassionately because, because frankly, there's a lot of conversations that ha- that need to be done 
at our, in, as far as medicine goes, at our level in my emergency department, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, you can see where racial bias comes into play really every shift. If you have any kind of a diverse population, you know, and we've all got stereotypes that pop into our heads. Um, yeah. You can think of some. I mean, you've probably heard it before. Have you heard of Hispanic panic? Yeah. You know, you know, so culturally we have these we respond to pain and illness and, 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 and uh, heartache differently. And when, when someone from the other culture sees how you culturally react, there is a complete and utter, there's a shift in the way you act with them. You see people get short. Um, and, and frankly, since it's not the way I react, I have to check myself and, and, and just acknowledge that there's bias or misunderstanding and then checking it and you can get better. But how do we convince people that the bias is there? That's the problem. That's what I can't, that's what, that's the hump that I think it's hard to get through with white people, especially in privileged positions or or in poor positions. You know, I mean, you know, they, you know, it's hard to convince that the dude three miles down the road that lives in a dirt road trailer that he's privileged, you know, and, and, and getting to that conversation is so freaking hard. It's overwhelming. I get really pessimistic at times. No, no, I think, no, I think you, you nailed it. I think, yes, like the conversations, um, yeah. So I think it framing in the say in the same way that we're three guys talking about sexism, like the, the conversations that we could have, we're like, Hey guys, we need to stop doing this shit. Right. Cause like, like, <laughs> as you mentioned, right. Like, sure. we, need to st- we need to like cut it out. Like what we're doing is ridiculous and it's like uncalled for and all these things. Correct. I think the mistake would be like, to give our opinion on like what's happening or what's not right i think that's that's a difference right if that conversation on the podcast was would have been hey man like we are doing all this crazy shit to like black patients and black doctors and black students and hispanic and you know muslim and whatever group you want to talk about we, we need to stop that would have been a very weird conversation then to say hey you know, we don't really like this calling, you know, calling it this. It's, I think it's harmful for us. And like, yeah, I think that's, I, I think that would be the difference between um, right. your approach of, of having, you know, your internal dinner table conversation versus um, what, what happened, unfortunately, in that podcast. Yes. And what's interesting about that podcast, they, they're like almost there, right? They're acknowledging how uncomfortable it is to call certain things racist, right? Like that's something that I feel that a little bit as well like i'm not i'm an anti-racist like i love everybody but like when someone says oh this practice is racist at first i'm like oh as a white male i'm like oh but like to be an ally like you said is to get through that uncomfortable feeling and listen to what the person is saying and i think that's where they stopped and was like yeah oh this is uncomfortable we just need a different term for it most people don't want to sit with their discomfort i mean it sucks i mean it's it's not pleasant to sit to sit back, you know, so many people will say to me, uh, you know, because the conversations, Daniel, that you hear us having are not the conversations that I hear. So I live in the country and my family is from the South um, and it is white mm-hmm. as the driven snow. And the conversations people have with me because I speak like them, I look like them, I am of them um, are are challenging, <laughs> you know, um, they're challenging because they will let you know how they feel. You know, they'll still make the, the subtle little sly black joke, uh, the little racist <laughs> stereotype thing and think it's cool with me just because I talk like them and, and, and going around correcting all that is exhausting and is certainly no way to win you any friends. Uh, 
No, yeah, I, and I think um, uh, an important thing to realize is that um, um, this thing is uncomfortable, right? Like um, this work is not meant to be comfortable, right? Like, black people have been uncomfortable in this country for centuries, right? So I think realizing that, and again, as you mentioned, realizing your own biases, right? Like I've been called out like in things that would appear that were sexist, right? Things that I did, I interrupted um, one of my uh, program directors last year and I, I, I was like, oh my, I felt so hurt. And it's, um, it's, I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, why, why would anybody say that? I'm like very like, I'm woke and like, I'm very like, you know, liberal. And like, I would, I would never ever do that. And like, I stopped myself and you know what, you know, that's, that's what I did. And I'm going to own up to it because it's not like we are all perfect. Yeah. Like I, even when it comes to race, have I ever not, have I ever um, stereotyped a patient based on their color? Of course we all have. And I think it's just being like, Hey, this is not what I believe in. This is not who I am. And this is wrong. And like, you know, I, I, I want to say, you know, I screwed up and I want to be better. Right. I mean, the, the beauty of all those folds in our cerebral cortex is it gives us the ability to think past our core instinct, that instinctual tribalism. We can think past that and think through it um, and make it and certainly try to make things better. Brandon, your mic's muted, brother. Awkward. I'll, I'll figure this stuff out one day. Uh, I only, you know, only about 14 months of using these this software. I still can't unmute things. Um, Steve had like an interesting question within one of his ramblings. Uh, you know, like having conversations at the dinner table between my family and my friends is one thing, right? But how do you convince the unconvincible that there is bias there? Like, like these two guys, you know, the, the people that did this podcast, like, how do you go and have this conversation with them as a white, you know, quote unquote ally? Like you got to step your game up. Like and if they're not even seeing it with firsthand experience, like where does this conversation go? You know, I, I thought on the podcast that the, the, the guy who the guest I thought was pretty kind of on the money. It was the host, I think, who got really uncomfortable with his characterization of the of the, you know, the, the word racism, structural racism, systemic institutionalized racism. Right. No, I mean, I think that's I mean, that's a million dollar question, right? I mean, there is I mean, is you can say how you convince COVID deniers that COVID exists. I, I give them COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I mean, I've, I've seen posts of people who have COVID, who are on max heat of high flow, who still denied COVID. I mean, um, I, I I wish I had the answer of how to convince I mean, people. look, some people are assholes and they just want to watch the word, world burn, right? I mean, some, some people are, but most people aren't. And I think that's where it's important to have the discussion of how best to have the discussion. So I, I didn't you know, the host could have used better words. I felt his discomfort with the, the social media tagline was really the offensive thing. If no, since no doctors are racist, which is complete bullshit uh, because racism exists everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, you know. so early in the pandemic, not even early in the pandemic, like in the middle of the summer when kind of the, the riots and all that stuff were happening with, or the protests, I mean, were happening. Um, Steve has a colleague who is a mm -hmm. physician 
that posts this really fucking aggressive video where he's holding semi-automatic weapons standing in his yard in fucking <laughs> Indiana begging black black lives matter to come to indiana to his to his yeah dude and try to like it's unbelievable like he, yeah, he sucks he posts, he posts this on social media as a physician it's unreal yeah yeah i mean <laughs> yeah and he's a he's a little uh jewish guy from the bronx who married a like a thai immigrant who is like very he's right of trump he you know he is yeah he, he want if trump wants to build a wall he wants to build it like a thousand feet high to the moon you know <laughs> or whatever so yeah but it, it's everywhere but i will tell you what i see uh, you know what Danny, what you see and where you are and Brandon differently as well. But what I see is a lot of a lot of white people who are tired of being told they're racist. So they can't mm -hmm. hear any of this conversation, you yeah. know, and this is where this is where I think the sticking point is, because I get to see that part. And certainly you can see it. There's backlash. Right. You know, people are are excusing the storming of the Capitol because there were people in the streets after Breonna Taylor got murdered. Right. Um, and after George Floyd got murdered um, and they're saying, yeah, but what about, what about that? They're tired of being told that they're the racists and they have to change. And so I don't know what the best way to approach this is. And I think it's just been this, this several year process. I'm trying to figure it out and I'm really not getting any damn closer without calling a spade a spade. No, no, no. It, it's hard. Cause like, um, no, I, Again, I, I wish I had the answer. I think this is... Uh, we had you know. on because we were told you had all yeah. the answers. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it, it's it's hard because, you know, like I, you know, I've, I've been angry at some things and like, you know, when when we are angry, like we like we don't want to... Yeah, like it, it's hard, right? Like, um, and I think... No, I do believe that in medicine, especially the younger generations, I, I think there's a lot of demand for change. And I think a lot of medical students and I see on Twitter and like my experience here, it's like a lot of, there's a lot of good people coming in, up in the ranks. And I think medicine will be changed, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, so much work. It, no, yeah. And like how to build those, those like those bridges. Cause you know, at the end of the day, we like, um, that's the only way that we can, we're going to solve this problem. It's like, we, like, we both need each other. And like, but um, sometimes for uh, many times for us, I mean, this is, it's not about like um, some mundane thing. I mean, we're talking about like the lives of like black folks in this country. And like, you know, you, we can like the comparisons, I, I, my opinion between what happened in the Capitol and like, you know, the, the George Floyd, um, uh, protests. I, I mean, there's, there's polar opposites. Like, and there's, you know, this guy who was brutally murdered, uh, broke the light, like, did not do anything, no resistance. And these other folks were just walking into the Capitol, um, like it's their backyard. So I think um, how to bridge, you know, how to how to find the allies and how to like empower them. You know, it's hard, and like I think um, it's going to take a lot of uh, you know dinner table conversations amongst right. uh, white folks to like figure it out because i think yeah it, it's a balance right you want to elevate black voices and and latinx voices and women's voices but the these people cannot do all the work so i think it, it right. it's from um it has to come from both sides right so you you guys for example um and you know you have to have your own dinner conversations and be like hey 
this is where we fucked up and excuse my language in the past mm -hmm. i don't know how long of the existence of medicine is that's what we're talking about here and then and and we are going to have a conversation about this is what has happened and this is what needs to change and you know we are going to have to have our own little meetings and come up together and kind of like what uh the anti-racist uh, coalition and demands for JAMA. This is what we need. And uh, I personally um, think that their demands um, pretty reasonable. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, the most interesting, I mean, maybe fucked up shit of this whole thing, right? Is if when I look back at med school, right? Mm -hmm. I, there's one buzzword that I can think of where we talk about injustice in medicine and that's Tuskegee. That's the only thing we're mm -hmm. taught, right? So like, I, I don't like, I guess you start back in medical school then and start with the basics, right? About how, how things have been. Kind it's of gotta be before medical structure. school. I mean, that, well, that's, yeah, that's well, one thing that gets overwhelming. I think that's where it's so overwhelming because when you say, well, okay, well, if we fix this, well, how do you fix that? Well, you got right. from medical school, you got to go back to college. Well, from college, you have to go back to yeah, high school and, and, and adequate education and, and recruiting. And it gets so overwhelming that it just makes you want to vomit because it's really got to be a ground up reformation of, of what our society looks like. And right now, at least, you know, the status quo still is the majority. And until that changes, and it will change clearly over time, demographically, we're changing. So change is coming, as the old hymn uh, said, but uh, it's going to be a minute, I think. And, yeah. and, and I think we do have to just spend a lot of time working on our own circle to try to just change a few hearts and minds at a time uh, to get it there. Because if you try to shove it down their throats, you get Trump. I mean, that's what, I mean, really. You get Trump. No. Uh, Trump was a backlash to Obama, man. They couldn't, you know, I mean. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think, um, and I don't know where this is where he was going. I think one of the issues is, you know, we talk about Tuskegee a lot. Like, like Tuskegee was like a one and done kind of event. Right. right? That's what we're talking That was the one time it happened was mm -hmm. this Tuskegee shit. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's not, I know, and yeah. it's not, right? And like. It's so ingrained in the med. Oh no, we have IRBs now, so the ski will never ever happen again. Well, you know, we talk about you know race correction for creatinine, race correction for a pulmonary function test, um, and all these like little things, and like it's uh, very subtle, and like we're missing out on we're missing out on a lot of small shit. Just yeah. because we're focused on on ski, because just ski was just like blatant, like you know, unethical, like you know, this is, and we were like, oh, this will never happen again. But we did this on so many. Subtle Tuskegee's that would probably cost um, a lot of lives just because we're like, lives. Oh. yeah, yeah, and we're still dealing with that. We're still dealing with the fallout of the mistrust of the of the black community, uh, even when it comes to vaccinations and everything else. They don't trust us, and and rightly so. And we, you know, so we've got to earn that back uh, for sure. Because you know, on the ground, the individual doc, you can't have, you don't have to have a racist bone in your body um, to harm a patient from structural racist beliefs that you don't even know are racist, you know? Uh, and so it really is, it's going to be a, a lot of education. It's going to be a lot of educational reform, I think. So, yeah. And, and it's go for it. Sorry. Nope. Go finish. It, no. And, and, and like things are so ingrained, Steve, like, for example, like when I first heard many years ago of like the creatinine thing or like how we learn in medical school that black patients respond to this antihypertensive and not this one. And it's, I know. And when I first heard, um, somebody say oh that's like that's not how it works and i'm like no i was taught that in medical school like no there's no way patients with 
black patients have higher have you know the creatinine is different because they have more muscle mass and like all this like things that i i thought you know like were true because that's what i thought and I, I was taught and i feel like all these things are so ingrained that as you mentioned um we're we, we have such a systemic racism problem that we have practices that we don't even know are racist but in contrary to what Jama said a systemic racism issue requires individual racists like like there has to be i mean there's a lot of i mean if you see the JAMA article um people are commenting on it on or the ama's recent uh tweets about re referring to the to the podcast there's a lot of people that are mad about like uh, anything that says anti-racist so there's a lot of folks out there that are like pretty far to the other side too so for sure um, well they're tired of talking about it right i mean they, they're mm -hmm. tired of being because when you imply that someone is a racist they push back you know so daniel through going through med school residency mm -hmm. now fellowship is there any instances that you've felt that directed towards you i know you've mentioned kind of this creatinine thing and you actually mentioned yourself doing a, a misogyny sort of thing with the program director but what about anything directed towards you like yeah, maybe I, I, subtle things yeah no I, I think um for example if you think of um i mean the whole i think the whole concept of medical school i mean think about your third year clerkships right um at least when i went to medical school i mean most of the, your grade is um is based on your clinical performance, right? How you present patients and your differential. And I went to internal medicine, right? And if there is if there's a group of people that are obsessed with how you present is us, right? Like it's ridiculous, <laughs> right? Um, I'm gonna say that in, in, I, towards my people, like we're, we're ridiculous with how we present patients. And like, you know, I, I moved to America when I was 17, right? And like how like some of my feedback was that, that I say, uh, or like too much. Like, how is that, fee like, I, I, I was, um, as 30, I would have been like, I don't know, 22, 23, I don't know. I started med school a little early. Um, so I had just come to this country like six years earlier and you want me to, to present at a level of somebody who was born here. Like, and like, right. not, not, not the information, not my differential, not my thought process, just like the fact that. It took a, it's not my first language. I just, I've been speaking English for five years, six years now. And so that's that. Um, and what's I interesting think, with that yeah, is go for it. there'd be a lot of people that would look at that and say, no, I think that's someone just not being sensitive to your situation, but that's the same thing. That's someone being racist against somebody that is not a native speaker is giving that sort of feedback when you, you don't even have that much of an accent, but clearly I can tell that you're not you know, maybe you, you were an English speaker first or a Spanish speaker first. So it's like, like, that's an obvious thing. This is probably why you like when I speak Spanish, holy shit, I pause and I say, <laughs> I say, como se dice, like all the time, you know, and like trying to figure out what yeah. the fuck I'm trying to say half the time. So like me trying to present, you know, anything in Spanish, like I, and imagine getting that sort of feedback when I'm doing as best as I can and trying to learn all this medicine and drinking from a fire hose, that would be like, I would be so livid. Yeah, super, super livid. Yeah, and, and like think about like I remember, and, and this is again like all these things. I thought I, I was I was the one like screwing up. I was like practicing in front of the mirror and all these things. And for example, when I started third year clerkship again, um, somebody told us that we had to be professional, um, like in a professional look, right? 
uh, you know, is wearing a tie and all those ridiculous things. And facial hair was mentioned for guys. Like, we cannot have facial hair. How ridiculous is that? Think about people that have facial hair for religious reasons, right? Like, obviously, right. they were not going to discriminate against them. Um, and, you know, exceptions were made or whatever. But just saying that, like, that is just exclusionary for in the sake of professionalism. And, you know, we have so many examples of like how like, and again, you, you know, your clerkship grades in medicine are mostly super subjective, right? And then think about myself. I have zero in common with my residents at the time, right? I'm this kid who was born in Dominican Republic, grew up in Mexico. Um, and when I went to medical school, it was not a very diverse uh, program at the time, probably not now e either. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have literally nothing in common. And then, you know, uh, ask students talking about how they play. They, yeah, they're playing golf on this on Sundays with their dad. And like, you know, my resident, my fellow medical students are just bonding. And I'm like, well, I have zero to contribute to this conversation. So I, I think the way we, the things that we value in like medical education, step scores, MCATs and all that, I mean, it's, um, it's very discriminatory against people of, of minority groups. Yeah, I think you had a tweet about the, was it you, I think, that had like one about the MCATs and standardized testing? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, somebody, I, I was, yeah, some people were, were not happy. So think about it, right? So <laughs> um, the MCAT, right? So, and, and people have like this whole concept of like standardized test. I mean, I, I, I'm yet to see, and if there's anybody who has any evidence, that the MCAT or any standardized test predicts who's going to be a good doctor. Again, what's a good doctor? I don't know what's a good doctor, but or performance <laughs> or anything, right? Like the MCAT predicts step one, right? What the, like, do you guys remember anything from step one? I certainly don't. Um, and I think we'll consider we'll consider ourselves good doctors. Just that um, it cost me six weeks of fear that I failed it while I was waiting I, I for know. the score to come back. I, I know exactly outside of distress and like anxiety. I don't remember anything from step one. So like you have a test that is, or the MCAT or the step one, whichever test that is weighted so heavily in applications, right? And what, what are things that people do to get uh, good scores? They buy these thousands of dollars of, of prep courses. And like, you know, think about the MCAT, right? So um, you previous performance in school. So you, if you have, if you come from a poor neighborhood with poor with schools that don't perform well, you're with and then that is just setting you up for failure for the rest of your life, right? And like we're putting putting so much weight on a test that essentially is a scream for for privilege, right? Um, I was lucky enough that I was able to afford a Kaplan prep course, and you know I did fine on step one. But like, how about my classmates who I thought were equally smart as I am? Um, that were not able to afford those tests. I mean, they got worse MCAT scores. And then when you go to medical school, kind of sets you up for the rest of your medical career. So I think putting so much value, and like, I'm not saying that we need to, to abolish the MCAT or step one, because I, I don't know, I'm not an educator, right? I'm not gonna come, I, I, I don't, this is, I don't know what the best way of to solve this issue. But I think realizing that it's a problem is the first step. Um, and I think that, um, um, that when we think of, you know, residency application or fellowship or medical school, I, I think, you know, this whole, the, the sole way of how we apply and we review applications is discriminatory against people who 
are quote set up for failure because you know if you're poor and black from this community in this state i mean it's it's really really hard to get out of that cycle yeah like for the mcats i was fortunate or unfortunate i guess i had like shoulder surgery so i was able to just sit in my apartment and just study all summer i didn't have to go have a job i like I don't come from a wealthy family by any means, but I was able to, you know, make me like make ends meet and not have to work 40 hours a week while studying for this. So like the lower socioeconomic folks that are already able to put themselves through school and, you know, are probably working 40 to 60 hours a week during the summer to kind of lift themselves up to, to be able to go to school and then studying for the MCATs on top of that or studying for the MCATs while they're doing all their coursework and working. Like, I mean, obviously that's a disproportionately, um, BIPOC um, population. So like, I, yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that either. And like, I did very well on my standardized test, but I don't, I don't make myself out to be like better than the, you know, 90th percent of like 90% of the other people. Right. Like, I think I just understand how to take a test. And so I don't know how to like, what the answer is for that either. Like, how do you actually delineate who's going to be good in this field right like not just someone that can recognize buzzwords and figure out what puzzle they're trying to figure out and they're trying to administer right. this question well medicine is yeah. medicine you have to have a scientific background and you have to have intelligence you have i mean you have to show capacity to learn but i don't know that spitting out yeah. you know biochemistry you know pathways as a 19 year old kid means that you can learn, you know, there's got to be some way because I find that the best physicians have much as much or more emotional intelligence than they do that, you know, their emotional IQ is just as high as their, as their standard knowledge based IQ. Uh, so long as you have a base level of learning, if you can identify with people at the human level and get to them where they are. To me, those are the great physicians. Those are the ones who I modeled myself after. I didn't model myself after house, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you guys work in the ED. I work in the ICU. Like, you know, I, you know, when somebody has a tension pneumo, you know, like, oh my gosh, I wonder what is the gene for whatever disease, right? You put in a, a chest <laughs> you and you create a situation, right? Like, like, you know, and like, again, what I remember from all those courses that I took was how to take these tests, right? It's like, how to, like, you know, how to, I don't want to say cheat the system, but how to like take keywords or key phrases or how to rule out answers when I don't even have no idea what the right answer is, but how to get me to get the right answer despite. Right. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, again, things that I, 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 again, I don't have the answer to what the best way is, but I think saying that, um, Wait, I think people put so much weight on all on all these things that I have zero correlation. Right, like the fact that I remember the, like the Philadelphia chromosome and like acute lymphoblastic leukemia, like that's like a, <laughs> I do not a remember that. Shock, right? <laughs> it was in there. I, you tickled a you tickled a fiber in the back of my brain with that. I don't remember. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So we're probably running pretty high on your time and we don't want to take any more of your time. Um, you know, I'm a little disappointed because we thought we were going to solve racism tonight and yeah. solve all the disparities in medicine. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Uh, but leave us with something. Leave us with something that you want to say to the three people, including my mom, who are listening to us right this second. Hey, we, we get a hundred every time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's okay. My parents will listen to it. They won't understand much of it, but they'll listen to it. 
Um, uh, uh, um, me llamo Esteban, donde está el baño, y uh, dos cervezas, por favor, es todo. <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, again, I, I think a couple of things. I think, you know, as whatever you are, right? You know, us as men, you know, thinking of sexism in medicine, you know, as, as um, if, if you're white, think about racism in medicine. These are, these are, things that are uncomfortable, right? And this conversation will never be comfortable, right? Because this is this is how it is, right? You're talking about people's lives. So recognizing that this is not supposed to be comfortable. If this is a comfortable conversation, we're doing something wrong. Number two, we all have biases, right? We all see, doesn't matter how you look like, we all see a patient of this color, this religion, this uh, gender, and we all have our biases. And our job is, um, as individuals to recognize that and be like, you know what, I recognize that my tendency when I see a patient that has sickle cell um, anemia is to say, oh, they are probably not in that much pain and they just want opiates, right? Our tendency is to scratch, take, a, take that assumption and that bias and throw it out the window and be like, hey, this is a blank slate. I'm going to take this patient and I'm going to do my best job to give them an unbiased medical treatment. And I think yeah. Um, with our patients and with your colleagues and with anybody else, I think um, if we're gonna if if we if we leave this conversation thinking, oh, I'm not racist, I'm not this. I think that's not the key. The key is to recognize that we all have tendencies, whether that's racism or sexism or whatever you want to call it. But our work is to um, take those tendencies and act against our nature and what society has told us that is what we should do and change that and be like, hey. I am, I, this is not what I believe. I believe that everybody should be treated fairly with this, everybody deserves the same rights and I'm gonna do that for whoever's in front of me. Yeah, and I love that. So like speaking candidly, I would say like four or five years ago, um, anytime I saw like a transgender um, coming through the, the ER, I would always in the back of my mind think, oh, this is probably a psych case, right? Because in my head, that's what it equated to. And it took kind of like some eye open, not necessarily eye open experiences, but just like reading up on the whole thing. Like it's over the last year or two, it's exploded into being much more on the, you know, on the forefront and accepted and open. And like, so I wasn't there yet five years ago. And so it took like me reading and talking to people and having these conversations to be, be the one where like now when, when a transgender woman or a man comes in to correct some of the staff when they write like in the comments woman right no you, mm -hmm. you delete the quotation marks like that is a transgender woman right it's you need to leave transgender on there so we know there might be male anatomy to work with uh as far as like you know in emergency settings but like that's a woman leave it as is like don't don't roll your eyes when you come out of that room like this is they're not they're not choosing to be this way right this is not someone that anyone would want to do and put themselves in this situation where they're ostracized so like I, so like, this is something that I had to overcome. And I think that's very poignant. What you were saying there is like, everyone has that, right. And so you need to, you need to identify that to be able to move forward with it. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, if, if we get to the point where like, oh, like, um, not recognizing that you, you might get to the point and very, it's a very fine line between that and saying, I don't see color. And I think that's also a problem, right? Because you and I, I <laughs> don't hard. I don't see gender. I don't see no you people have their experiences and you know you need we need to recognize them, right? When you see a uh, a trans woman, you know, it's 
they've gone through hell you know this this country and the world treats them like you know very poorly and and people have done unspeakable things to them so i think recognizing people's experience is as you mentioned it's key in all in all of this work yeah yeah all right daniel i really appreciate the uh the hour you gave us yeah thanks for your time man uh good luck uh so gotta get another so you're finishing up your first year of fellowship so yeah and then you're the boss man i wish actually man. i always wish i did critical care and i actually even about a month ago it was looking into programs out here it's just i i miss it you know too old too old (laughs) never too old i mean it's just you know you have to be a fellow again that that might be the the, the, man pgy PGY for income doesn't work with the attending lifestyle that i've built over the last decade (laughs) i'd love to see steve uh reporting to somebody too yeah Yeah, right yeah Yeah. well we appreciate you get you some rest uh i got a 6 a.m shift tomorrow so i'm gonna log out too brandon we'll get together oh well we're still recording so uh i'll deliver Whatever, awesome. delete it all. All righty. Thanks, dude. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Burnt Podcast, including another stellar landing of a closing by Steve, which I chose not to delete. Until he calls me out on making fun of him, I'm going to continue to do so. This topic to me was near and dear. Uh, I'm happy that we could make Daniel's voice just a little bit louder, and I hope all of you can internalize what he had to say and help take some of the subconscious issues to heart. As always, if you have comments, questions, or ways we can improve, please let us know. Give us a follow, send us your own story or topic, and we would love to have you on. Let's fight the burnout together.